This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where practicing lawyer and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Hello, liberty lovers, and welcome again to the Liberty and Law Podcast. Uh, We are here to discuss interesting issues in the law and their implications for the cause of human liberty in our country and even around the world. And around the world is what's on my mind today. China has fascinated me since I was a little boy. And I always wanted to visit there. I think I became fascinated because I was one of those geeky kids in junior high that was actually into politics and I was worried about the Cold War and Uh, As I studied some of our Cold War history, I became particularly interested in Richard Nixon's trip to China. And I read a book by him clear back in the early 80s called The Real War, where he wrote about a strategy for defeating communist imperialism worldwide. And he dwelt to a great degree on China. He said China was, uh, was a power to be reckoned with, that they were patient, and that they were an important ally in keeping the Soviet Union at bay. China today is a much more important nation internationally than it even was then. Today, the largest economy in the world is the United States, $20.49 trillion in 2021. And that's actually down from around $24 trillion a year or so ago. And uh, that, I, I would think, is a result of the COVID pandemic. Uh, the debt of the United States, though, is approximately $28 trillion. So, we're not going in a good direction that way when virtually everything in our entire country uh, wealth-wise is pledged as collateral for loans. And the only way we're going to be able to pay those loans is uh, more quantitative easing by the Fed, which is is a fancy way of saying printing more money. Uh, A lot of that debt that we have is held uh, by China. China is the second largest economy in the world at $3.4 trillion, and the next competitor much lower, Japan at $4.97 trillion. So the United States and China are very far out ahead of everyone else in terms of uh, the total value of our economy. Well, why should we care about this? Why should we worry about it? I want to, uh, again, give some insight from Richard Nixon. And I actually quoted this when I was in China a couple of years ago. And I want to, uh, to tell you more about that in a minute. But he said that the United States measures its history in decades. And if you think about it, That's really true. We talk about the Roaring Twenties. We associate the 90s with Bill Clinton and the 80s with Ronald Reagan. Uh, We talk about the 30s as being the decade 
of the Great Depression. We talk, uh, you know, we talk about our history in terms of 10-year periods, typically. So he said that the United States measures its history in decades. Europe measures it in centuries. If you think about it, when we talk about British history, we talk about the 17th century, and that's called sometimes the Stuart Age. Um, we talk about the 18th century, you know, as being the British Empire uh, getting started. Anyway, Europe measures time in centuries, and China measures it in terms of millennia. And oftentimes this involves the dynasties of particular imperial families. And I don't know Chinese history super well, uh, but I believe that to be true. And in fact, I quoted it repeatedly in China and people nodded their heads. Um, so I guess what that means to me is that Americans want to move fast. We measure our, our history in decades. We want to be much further ahead the next decade than we were the last decade. And, and we are always on the path of progress. Uh, China has a much longer view and they're much more patient. They don't need to achieve everything that they want right now because they know they'll get there eventually. And a big part of their strategy is to wait everyone out. Now, I went to China at the end of 2017 as part of a business and trade delegation from the state of Utah. And we visited four Chinese cities, Hangzhou, Jinan, Suzhou, and Kunming. And I want to talk to you about a couple of things that I learned over there. China is on the move economically. And uh, Bill Clinton, with strong encouragement from the current president, Joe Biden, got China into the World Trade Organization. And China has prospered like never before since then. Uh, that move to increase ties with China and or between China and the West began, as I said, under President Richard Nixon, who wanted an ally in the Cold War against Soviet expansionism. And Nick, the Nixon policy was known as constructive engagement, and Nixon believed that if we had trade with China, we could push certain democratic ideas through the door while the door was open for commercial goods and that we could get, you know, American movies and books and music and other things into China that would gradually start to create democratic changes. And when the Tiananmen Square uh, incident occurred with the students protesting, I thought really that maybe that was happening. And uh, 
course, the Chinese government ultimately cracked it down and, uh, and put down the, the protest. And I thought maybe that was the beginning of the end. You know, there was a, it was the Boston Massacre of China, if you will. But China is much more used to tyrannical authoritarian governments than we Americans were, uh, having been founded by the British and inheriting their traditions of liberty. When, when I visited China in 2017, one of the places they took us near Jinan it was called Innovation Valley, and we spent the better part of a day there. Like many other places in China, there were a large number of city-sized like condominium buildings that nobody was living in or very few people were living in. Most of it was empty. Now, in Innovation Valley, there were also grocery stores and movie theaters and other amenities that people would need if they were going to live and work there. And there were all of these labs, or at least space for all these labs. And again, people only using a tiny fraction of it. My belief was that their grand vision was to attract great scientists and inventors and give them uh, free or cheap lab space to do their work in and ultimately appropriate their intellectual property. And China is notorious for doing that. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't make anything of their own. They simply steal what other people make, create a cheap version of it, and clean our plates in international trade. I had a client, a uh, name I won't mention, nor the product, but they decided that they wanted to build a factory in China and take advantage of certain trade advantages as well as cheap labor and whatever. They began building this factory in China and unbeknownst to them, the Chinese government was watching everything they did by satellite and literally building another factory just like it elsewhere in the country. <clears throat> step by step, they watched, followed, and then did the same thing. Well, my client went over there to check on his factory at one point. And as he drove up to the factory, there was a, a, a wire fence around the whole complex. And the uh, soldier that was waiting, you know, was guarding the gate said, um, who are you? He said, this is my factory. And the soldier shook his head and said, not anymore. It's my factory. And my client said, well, I built this factory. I funded it. And the soldier said, well, it's been nationalized. It now belongs to the People's Republic of China. Well, I'm not suggesting that that always happens, but you don't have the same assurances uh, of private property ownership over there that you have here in the United States. And my client lost over $2 million on that deal. He feels lucky to have escaped with his life. True story. <clears throat> well, more insight from, from China. When, when we were there, we were treated incredibly well. People were kind and hospitable everywhere we went. Uh, we were greeted by 
high government officials in every uh, city that we visited. And each of those cities had, you know, 6 million people or so, uh, some more than that. They would be considered very large cities here in the United States. And the mayor of Sujo, I believe a city that has around 8 million people, uh, gave a formal state dinner for us. And the food that we were treated to was, was just amazing. Probably the five most opulent hotels I've ever stayed in in my entire life were all during that trip to China. I mean, beautiful marble and woodwork and just uh, unbelievable. China is a beautiful country and they have moved into the modern world when it comes to computers and gadgets, watches. Uh, their stuff isn't that good. Uh, but they have they have a little of everything. Um, what I want to say about about this visit, though, more than anything else, is that each place we went, when we, we were anxious to meet with business leaders, we were told, um, you know, this person they would. Uh, have us shake somebody's hand and, and they would say, this person is our government regulator. And eat, I mean, literally everywhere we went, these government regulators were there. We, we had a police escort only in Sujo. Uh, everywhere else, uh, we didn't have police, but we had these government regulators that were always in these meetings. And at first I thought, well, maybe they're, they're there to monitor and sort of spy on us and make sure that we're not doing any deals that they don't approve of or something like that. And, and maybe there was an element of that, but I, I started to get a bigger picture that what these people were really there for was to see what the business leaders needed and what how they could clear a path for them to, to do what they needed to do. And it was really, in a lot of ways, I believe the marriage of corporate power and political power, which we know uh, in political speak as fascism. I don't believe the Chinese model is really fundamentally communist. I think it is fascist. I think it is a form of crony capitalism. And it's funny, I, I saw this, I was watching CNN uh, one night in my hotel room, and it was, it was a Marriott hotel. And they had this uh, TV station called Marriott CNN. And it occurred to me, you know, that this is probably only, that CNN is probably only allowed in Marriott hotels with international guests. I doubt very much that CNN is being broadcast throughout China. But be that as it may, there was a guy talking about a book that he had written. And he talked about modern uh, dictatorships. And his view of things was that, you know, it used to be like under the Nazis or dictatorships we are more familiar with in history that people would disappear in the middle of the night 
or there were mass graves like at the death camps in in Germany and Poland or the killing fields of Cambodia. And he said that the, the new form of dictatorship is a little softer, at least on the outside, that if the government is upset with you and you're a business person, you know, you say too much against the government or you somehow get crosswise with your government regulator, uh, it's not that you're going to disappear in the middle of the night, but they're going to send the tax man around every day. They're going to send the fire marshal around every day to check for violations. They're going to investigate hard. They're going to find you out of compliance with the law. And they're going to make it so, they're going to tie you up so much dealing with them and their administrators and regulators that you don't have time or resources to run your business and you gradually just fold up. And it was funny, the day after I saw this program about this book that had been written, uh, the leader of our delegation who grew up in Hong Kong and speaks fluent Chinese, is Chinese, but uh, naturalized citizen of the United States now. Anyway, he, he told us, you cannot ignore the government regulators that attend all of these dinners. He said, it's very important that you pay attention to them, that you get them to like you. <clears throat> he said, it, you ignore them basically at your peril. He said, if these people don't like you, what happens? They send around the tax man every day. They send around the fire marshal every day. And he basically said the exact same things that this guy that wrote the book had talked about, about modern dictatorships. And, and that is the way they deal with dissenters in China. And he, our, the leader of our delegation, told us that he had basically been run out of a couple of different Chinese cities because they got crosswise with a government regulator. Now, that is not allowing market forces or the forces of capitalism to, to govern. That is the government picking winners and losers. And while the government does that a lot more than I think they should here in the United States, uh, they're doing it on a mass scale in China. So instead of letting the market determine how many houses need, need to be built and how many people will buy, for example, they build these huge city-sized uh, buildings full of condominiums that nobody lives in because someday somebody will live in them. It's a very curious uh, kind of economic system. And it isn't the system that Mao envisioned. <clears throat> it's the, the founder of modern China is not Mao Zedong, it's Deng Xiaoping. And, uh, and people over there know that, that he, he made a lot of reforms and created the system that, that they currently live under. Their economy has grown super fast. Uh, over the, you know, twice as fast as the United States over the last decade or two. <clears throat> and you wonder why? Well, part of it is that they did adopt elements of capitalism. Part of it is that it's, it is efficient in some ways 
for the government to grant monopoly powers. But even more, uh, they don't allow uh, the worker. It's funny to think about a communist country that uh, talks about work, the worker as being the most important element of the economy, but, but you know, workers over there make Nike shoes for a nickel an hour. And the worker is not elevated uh, above management the way Karl Marx might have envisioned. Um, their labor record is, is terrible. They work in dangerous and unhealthy conditions. Uh, children are put to work at a very young age. Children go to school in China 16 hours a day. Uh, we visited a number of schools and, and learned this from the kids firsthand. What, what's your schedule like? And they would tell us. And literally, they're in school virtually every waking hour. And, you know, there's they do have sports and organized activities, but just free recreational playtime, there's not much. The schools are oriented toward uh, creating good factory, you know, obedient factory workers who know how to follow a process, who know how to be on time, who know how to, to do their part in an assembly line and not question authority. Their schools are not designed to create innovators and creative people. They're just not. Uh, they, they create human robots in a, in a lot of ways. Um, the kids, though, were very warm-hearted. I mean, it was so fun to meet them. You know, we would walk into their school and they would be standing there in five rows wearing traditional uh, Chinese costume and singing to us. And, and that was fun, you know. They, and they kind of acted like we were the Beatles. I don't think many of them had seen many Americans before. And so they, you know, they were clapping and cheering when we walked in. And uh, a lot of them wanted to try speaking English to us because they learn English, but the only people they normally get to speak it with are other Chinese people. So some of them were eager to, to do that. Well, anyway, uh, China was fascinating. Looking at their economic model was fascinating. I don't believe it has long-term sustainability, partly because, number one, I think at some point there's going to be a labor revolt because of the unhealthy conditions and um, inhuman hours that people are asked to work. Uh, I also don't believe that, that the inefficiencies created by a command and control economy are going to work in the long term. Right now they work because they cut... Uh, corners on labor, they cut corners on environmental policy. And that is uh, something President Trump pointed out uh, a lot when he was running for election both times. He said the Chinese uh, are not being fair because they devalue their currency to compete in the international arena and because they um, they cut corners on uh, labor, human rights, and uh, the environment. And, you know, so they create, uh, they create a lot of efficiencies that way, but it's at a cost of uh, their citizens' freedom and happiness. And it reminds me a little bit of Alexis de Tocqueville wrote something in Democracy in America. <clears throat> and he said that uh, 
in in Europe, uh, people, uh, you know, you can get a very high quality watch. You know, Switzerland today is known for their watches. And he said, in America, the watches aren't very high quality, but almost everybody has one. Well, if you look at the quote unquote watches that are being produced now, and not only, you know, like the Apple watch and the smart watches, but also the, the phone that you carry in your pocket, the smartphone is among other things, a watch. It is also a fax machine and, you know, an email computer. And you, you go down the list, it, it replaces a whole bunch of other machines and gadgets that we had. It's a camera, it's a movie camera. I mean, and, and all of this fits in your pocket. I mean, it's amazing. Stereo system. Anyway, um, I don't think Tocqueville totally appreciated at the time the progress that economies of scale could make. That if people had money to buy things, uh, and that money represented their effort in producing things that there was going to be a lot of things to buy and it was going to be relatively inexpensive and people were going to have a lot more cool stuff. And I don't know that I see China going there because uh, of all of the things that I've, that I've mentioned. They believe the way to, uh, to progress is authoritarianism. And here in America, we believe the way to progress is freedom. And I believe that uh, history has shown and will continue to show that freedom is ultimately the better way. What China has on its side is patience. You know, they measure their history in millennia. And so they wait. They aren't trying to conquer the world in a conventional way with arms. They're not uh, militarily ambitious uh, for wars of conquest. That isn't their model. What they're trying to do is appropriate everyone's technology and use it to make China wealthy. That is their economic model. And they're doing it through a command and control policy where government and corporations uh, work together to clear the way for the developments that they want. So do I think China's a threat? Yeah, I do. Do I think China ultimately will prevail uh, as the most powerful country in the world over the United States? If the United States can marshal its strength, uh, there's no nation on earth still that can compete with us for superpower status, including China. I don't believe that the authoritarian and possibly fascist government model in China is going to work in the long term. I believe in freedom, and I believe at the same time that the United States uh, has to open its eyes when it comes to China. I believe in trade with China. I believe in Nixon's policy of constructive engagement. Uh, I do believe that by trading with China, we can push some of our ideas through the door and allow their people to begin to think differently about certain things. I believe in all of that. 
However, uh, we need to be hard-nosed, just as hard-nosed as they are. We need to drive a hard bargain and make sure that if they're not going to comply with environmental standards, if they're not going to pay their workers, that we don't trade with them on equal terms because we don't want American workers to have to compete with nickel an hour labor in China. Uh, and, you know, we've decided that we want a society where, for example, collective bargaining is part of individual people uh, being able to reap the fruits of their own labor and that people have a right to aggregate their market power and insist that employees get a fair deal. Uh, that is fundamentally a capitalistic idea, and it's allowing the market to work. Uh, there's a lot wrong here in America. I believe that the Chinese model is fundamentally flawed, and I think there's a lot more wrong over there when we talk about politics. I also uh, believe that ultimately China is destined for a big fall and that they're going to have to completely reorganize at some point uh, because I don't believe the model that they are following is going to work. But over the next 20 years, yeah, China is a threat. China is uh, doing what it can do to centralize power and collectivize wealth and they, they have recently made uh, a lot of strides by doing that. It's been at a terrible expense to the freedom and human rights of their people. But uh, they are a power to be reckoned with, and we have to take it seriously. Well, that's about it, Liberty Lovers. I uh, am grateful for you tuning in and listening to my experiences in China, as well as my analysis for the implications of China's economic model on freedom in China and throughout the world. Tune in next time, and thank you for listening.